Good morning, everyone. And uh, having had uh, Walt and then uh, Regina go into the presence of the Lord this week, I'm thankful that we have a Savior. How about you? And uh, that he really is who he claims to be. So last week, I killed you with theology. Put you half asleep. By the way, I've got somebody here to help me today. Would you stand up and show your shirt to everybody? Any damage I do, we have Mr. Fix-It right here. So, thank you, David, letting me abuse you like that. I'm so bad. So you know that I'm loaded when I come with all my books. Last week, I brought a big theology book. I don't think I read much out of it, if anything. Today, I will read a little bit out of some of these. If you would take your Bibles and turn, if you want to use the, the, the Bible that is in the seat in front of you, it's page 1198, if you're new at this. It's Hebrews chapter 5. That's where we're going to be. Hebrews, the fifth chapter. <clears throat> and as you're turning there, you might have to be a few years old to, uh, to get the... Oh, I'm sorry. That, that is my sweater. I don't think my sweater makes any noise. But, uh, yeah, you're right. Okay. I... <laughs> Sure hope I don't have to sneeze. That would be bad. So for those of you who are visiting, we have broken up for the holidays a series in the book of Hebrews, which is a book that is not often exegeted. And I've confessed to my congregation, it's the first time I've actually worked my way through it, enjoying what I'm learning and trying to share that which is of profit to all of us as a congregation. And so the name of the series, you can see Better Things. We use that. Uh, and by the way, put that back up for a moment because the other ones are a little bit... Everybody knows what that is, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, not really. That's not the one from Raiders. But it is a similitude, if you will, of the Ark of the Covenant, which is referencing the uh, Old Testament saints and the whole history And the book of Hebrews is written to those who understand this and have a background in it. Probably a small congregation in uh, the city of Rome after the gospel has started to spread throughout the Roman Empire. But these people are recognizing for the first time that they may be up against some persecution. So if you want an overview of the whole book, I'm going to have to do something about that or I'm going to kill people today. Huh? But, But then it'll be behind about that. that that'll prop. Sorry. I've had trouble two weeks. Last week I couldn't get my coat off or my robe, right? Let's do it this way. There. How's that? Better? Where was I? Rome. Yes. Yes. And um, they're being exhorted. The whole book is an exhortation not to fall away from this wonderful, beautiful Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. So today's title is The Source. And I asterisked it because, once again, it's stolen. Does anybody remember James Michener's The Source? He was a big name a while back writing uh, historical novels. Do you ever remember the movie The Hawaiians and Hawaii? Uh, I think that was his. And uh, The Source was also his. And what it was based on was that suddenly there was discovered a text that was going to impact the veracity of Christianity, which thankfully we don't have to worry. Uh, It is true. 
Christianity is true, and there's lots of evidence backing it up. But that's where it came from. And I picked the title, The Source, rather than the other name that came to mind, which was Author, Author, which sounds like a depressing movie. It's an old one, another divorce situation. I didn't want to use that and bring up those kind of memories, so I didn't even want to mention the name. Yeah, I didn't do too well, did I? Okay. And um, other definitions. See if we can find where I'm getting this from. Look for it in the text. If, you're, if you've got your Bible open, chapter 5, starting in verse 5, we're going to read all the way down to verse 10. It's the latter part of the passage that really matters. So let me begin. It'll be on the screen in case you don't have it in front of you. So also, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Just as he says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Pause. Those are references that the author is referring to from the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. Prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ and the Messianic coming. In the days of his flesh, note that, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Now, it should be obvious he wasn't saved from death. What he was saved from, you'll see in a few minutes, and we will park on it again in the next week. In other words, he was praying for a specific end, and he got the answer he was asking for. Next, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. What? Did, God ever, did Jesus ever sin? Wow. How, what did he have to learn? Don't you love questions like that? I'm not answering them. Anyway, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. We're actually going to unpack it next week. And having been made perfect... Made perfect. The word means he completed his mission. He became to all those who obey him. Notice that phrase. All those who obey him. The source. I don't want to hint too much. He became to all who obey him. By the way, can I just pause for a second? Does that bother you what I just read? He became to all who... Oh, what? I thought we had to believe in him. I'm going to let that hang. Okay. Obey him, the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, an order that has no end, if you will, pictured in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 5. In the Greek language, the word that is used here, he became the source can also be translated the author or the cause. It's a word that's used, for example, in, in historical literature. If a general has led his army to victory, he's the cause, he's the source, he's the reason that Rome has won this victory or Greece has won this victory. He's the root of it. He's the cause. He's the author. He's the source. And that's what we want to talk about today is the source of our great salvation. If you're a note taker, you'll see on your bulletin that there are four fill-ins. And I don't know if I want to give them all at once, but the first one is Christ, the Son, 
Or another word you might use is the substitute. And um, I was pondering this as I was preaching funerals in the last two weeks. That there is a Savior that we absolutely can depend on. That he's the only one we know of that has a credible history that tells us that he not only experienced death, but he came back to talk about it. He's alive. There's an empty grave still. We can't find his body. You're not going to. He's been raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father of the Majesty on high, waiting to come back and set all things right. So there's a uniqueness to this person, Jesus, even historically, not to mention theologically. And um, all through, I was telling the worship team as we were getting ready to pray, I've had this um, old worship song. I know that uh, usually when you say old, it's a hymn. But there are old worship songs too, right guys? Those who've been around a while? Anybody been around a while? All of a sudden everybody's like, am I in the right church here? (laughs) He is exalted. The king is exalted on high. I will praise him. Remember that one? He is exalted. The king is exalted. And I will praise his name. He is the Lord forever. His truth shall reign. Heaven and earth. Petra did it? They, they didn't start it, I don't think. I don't think so. Who? Twyla Paris. Yeah, I think, sure. Anyway, we're off track. I thought I had ADD. Okay. Forever his truth shall reign. Heaven and earth rejoice in his holy name. This is the unique center of human history. The person of Jesus entering into our world. Christ the Son is the first thing. Last week we talked about theology, and I have to do two things. I have to add that this is all about a part of theology called Christology, right? And um, so I just wanted to bring that up again, since we mentioned it last week, and there's a reason that we're pressing in. First with Hebrews 5.7, we already read it. I'll just put the phrase on the screen rather than the whole thing. In the days of his flesh is talking about the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead entering into the world, entering into history. I think I shared a way back uh, some of my illustrations that go back a while or stories that I've told Probably we've forgotten, but when my wife and I first were married and we went off to seminary, we had the opportunity to go to Japan um, as short-term missionaries for a summer. And we got to speak in classrooms that, where you would teach English and things because they, they want to learn English and speak English, and so conversational English was easy for me as long as I could keep my New Yorkese out of it a little bit. And uh, I, was, I got the chance to share my testimony many times. And so I did this one day, and I was talking about knowing God through the person of Jesus Christ. And I remember a young man came up to me afterward, and he said, I will not believe in this God you're talking about unless he comes down here on the earth. I said, funny you should put it that way. Because that's exactly what happened. In the days of his flesh, part of Christology, the doctrine about Christ, is that he was incarnated. He became man. It's one of the mysteries. People always debate, how can he be fully God and fully man? And we don't have time to unpack all that. But somehow, those two 
natures are perfectly combined in the person of Jesus, yet without the sinful part, which is why the virgin birth is important, as our brother Derek pointed out a while back. It's an indicator of his Godhead combining with humanity. One of the things I like to point on this is we're going to be talking about uh, soteriology in a minute, right? The doctrine of salvation, I'll put that word up later because I also misspelled one. Dr. Ashley pointed out, I misspelled one of those words last week. I hate making mistakes. But thankfully, I have a Savior and, uh, who's made atonement for me, and we want to talk about that. Atonement, making things right, that there are times that people need to be reconciled, that something is broken in the relationship, and we want to talk about that relating to God. But let me begin with this. There's a chapter in the book written by John Stott, the cross of Christ, that is called the self-substitution of God. Sometimes, and I'm going to just read this out of a a little um, uh, primer, Doctrinal Introduction, The Christian Life by Sinclair Ferguson. I've passed this around. I guess it agitated Brother Tim Strait's uh, spirit for a while, and you found it profitable, correct? Uh, There's a line in here I want you to catch. The source of Christ's work, the source of our salvation, the source of our justification resides in the love of God. Not for a moment should we countenance the caricature of biblical teaching that a loving Savior reconciles us to a grudging Father. Isn't that a great statement? So a loving, meek and mild Jesus reconciles us to the mean, ugly... That is completely wrong. God is giving of himself to rescue. He's solving the problem. His son is the one who takes on the assignment to reconcile us. Love as love alone can never justify. A judge in court cannot justify his guilty child in the dock on the grounds that he loves him. Something more must be done. The love of God is the source of our justification, but the death of Christ is its grounds. The source comes from the love of God, the Father who loves us and interposes himself to rescue us in the form of the Son. And the Son's sacrifice is what provides the source of our salvation. Does that make sense? So often we get it wrong, and we even come into the family of God and get it confused. God substitutes of himself. How more clear can it be than a passage that half, uh, I'll say at least half of us in the room have this memorized, second half of this text. Ready? John, John, the third chapter. Anybody know what's there? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is Jesus Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Anybody recognize the next verse? You can say it with me, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's pretty clear, isn't it? God so loved the world. He's not this grudging father. He gives of himself to rescue us. By the way, the 
story from the Old Testament, Leviticus. So I think I wrote the note down. What chapter was that in? I can't remember now. 17, I think. Thank you. <laughs> Leviticus 17, pointing back to that phenomenal story where God was disciplining his people with fiery serpents and anyone that got bit would swell up and die. So God said to Moses, make a serpent, put it up on a pole. Boy, does that have a symbolism in it? Put it up so everybody can look at it. When they look at it, because they believe what you say, they'll be miraculously healed, and it worked. What a picture, right? It's an illusion. Jesus himself is saying, that's me in the Old Testament. Do you understand? That's me. Just as, this, as Moses lifted up the serpent, the same way I have to be lifted up and I will be on a cross, that whoever looks believing at me will be rescued, will gain eternal life. Isn't that awesome? Big picture is the salvific work of God, which theologically, just coaching those who got jazzed by last week, I know most of us weren't so jazzed, but... Those who did is called soteriology, coming from the word soter, savior, the doctrine of salvation. This is part of it. In order to be saved, I need to be declared righteous, justified. I am guilty in the box waiting for the judge to pronounce sentence. I don't deserve to be let off. How do we solve this problem? This is called atonement. And by the way, we need soteriology, we need to be saved, we need atonement, which I'm going to explain in a minute, because we are, how did you know that? We're sinners. The next word, this is what I misspelled like, <laughs> yeah, I said har har last week, I said harmarchiology, I was wrong, it's hamartiology, okay, the word for sin. Harmartia, falling short of the mark, failing, sinning. Because of that, we need salvation. We need something done on our behalf. I wanted to use a video clip today. To, we can take that down. The word, the word I want to park on for a moment is atonement. It's a word that talks about... If you look it up in um, Webster... Not even a theological book. It says to reconcile, to be, get this, you ought to love this class, at harmony. <laughs> Can you imagine all you have to do is walk in this building and you're reconciled? Isn't that cool? No, it doesn't work that way. To be at harmony, as in when something has gone amiss and there's a broken relationship. To make amends, to supply satisfaction. Couldn't run this today because we we're not up to speed completely technologically, but there's a classic spiritual movie called Father, Father of the Bride Part Two. <laughs> and in that movie, uh, George Banks is going through a, uh, a midlife crisis, and he goes a little bit cuckoo, and he decides to sell the house that his whole family grew up in and his wife still loves and doesn't want to move. Needless to say, she's perturbed. And she calls him Banks, which is never a good sign. And she sends him off. He, they're not together right then. They're very upset. And uh, he knows he needs to make atonement. And when he goes back walking past his house, the people who just bought it are going to demolish it to put up two condos. 
And so he stands in front of the wrecking ball. It's a very dramatic scene. Oh, my, very spiritual. But he does stop the demolition, and he finally gives in because the man who's going to demolish the house said, well, if you want to buy it back, I'll let you buy it back for $100,000. I just sold it to you yesterday. You want to make that much money off me? Yes, (laughs) the answer. And he finally says, you don't know, I'm the cheapest man in the world. But he finally caves in and writes a check for it. And the last scene that I wanted to show is he knocks on, what's her name, Nina, his wife's door. And he's on his knees. And his wife comes out and she says, that's not funny, George, blah, 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 blah. And he holds up the key to the house as a peace offering of atonement. And when she sees the key... She melts. That's atonement. It cost him a lot. But let me tell you, that's kind of an insipid illustration compared to the debt that we have with the living God. $100,000 won't cut it. All that you have won't cut it. I thought about this a lot as I was visiting with my son-in-law this past week. And um, he's in a neighborhood where, and I'm not making a judgment one way or the other, just follow along with my story, where the new bail reform has really paid off because someone had been pilfering houses and cars in the neighborhood. He gets arrested, they can't hold him, and he continues to pilfer cars in the neighborhood, and they pick him up and have to let him go, and he continues to pilfer cars in the neighborhood, Somewhere along the line, there needs to be some satisfaction, something to make atonement, don't you think? You want it to stop. You want it fixed. I thought of an idea, but I won't mention it now because it wouldn't be very charitable. But anyhow, Christ is the sacrifice, the giving of himself. In the Old Testament, there's a clear picture, and we see it revealed in Leviticus chapter 17. We see it actually in Genesis after the fall of man. If I could put that Leviticus text up. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. It represents death. Starting in Genesis, the very beginning, when the fall happens, how does God deal with Adam and Eve's nakedness? With what? Wasn't nylon. Skins. Where do you get skins? All right, so do the math. Blood, death, represented to cover the sin of man. So, the life of the flesh is in the blood. There had to be a payment. This is why the scripture talks about, in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. This alienation. The need for the guilty to pay up. The wages of sin is death. Now you can't get a more loving response than this. If I can show you Romans 5.8 filling in on the subject. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, which means slash guilty, alienated from God, we keep getting let out on the street and we shouldn't be allowed to. Over and over and over. No, no, no. Even when we were still doing that, Christ died for us. 
Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. A word we don't like to talk about, wrath of God. Speaking of not liking to talk about things, I want to talk about sin for a minute. Can I? Who's going to stop me? (laughs) I better be careful. One day somebody may come up and stop me. Multiple words used for sin. This is in this highly recommended text that I've mentioned, John Stott's The Cross of Christ, which tries to help us understand why it had to be this way. Different words. Hamartia, which I just mentioned, missing a target, failure to attain a goal. Adakia, that means without, anything that's amoral means no morality. Adakia, the word for righteousness, means no righteousness. Iniquity, unrighteousness. Poneria is evil of a vicious or degenerate kind. There's several other words that mean trespass, transgression, stepping over a known boundary. Anomia, no law, lawlessness, the disregard or violation of a known law. In each case, an objective criterion is implied, either a standard we fail to reach or a line we deliberately cross. You hear that? A standard we fail to reach or a line we deliberately cross. Here's the problem. Whenever you're talking about do you need a savior, all you have to ask is, have you ever crossed the line you knew you shouldn't cross? We all have, somewhere along the line. It's assumed throughout Scripture that this criterion or ideal has been established by God. Here's what we have to get. It is, in fact, his moral law, which expresses his righteous character. It is not the law of his own being only, however. It is also the law of ours, since he has made us in his image and in so doing has written the requirements of his law in our hearts. Thus, the... Can I park on that for a second? What I'm saying there, when we break the law, when we go against God's moral law, we're actually harming ourselves. We're violating our own lives, which is why sin brings death. And people who have given themselves fully to it, you can just see the strain of sin on them. It's damaging because we're fighting reality. God made us this way. We're moral beings. This, thus, a vital correspondence between God's law and ourselves. To commit sin is to commit lawlessness, offending against our own highest welfare as well as against the authority and love of God. We think it's about naughty-naughty. Well, it is, but it's also harming ourselves. We're our own worst enemy. I say that many times when I read the newspaper. Boy, are we our own worst enemy. Sin is not a regrettable lapse from conventional standards. Its essence is hostility to God. Anybody remember, and he references this way back, a psychiatrist named Carl Menninger wrote a book, Whatever Became of Sin. That was the name. Now, 40 years later or 30 years later, whatever it is, we're looking at some of the consequences. Let me just mention. He notes... Many former sins have become crimes. Responsibility for dealing with them have passed from the church to the state, from priest to policeman. Others have dissipated into sickness or at least into symptoms of it so that their case punishment has been replaced by treatment, and on and on it goes. 
And I know that there's always difficult and complicated situations, but sin cannot be dismissed as merely a cultural taboo or social blunder. It's something that we do in crossing the line in adversity to God himself and therefore harming ourselves in the process. Sin is an implicitly aggressive quality, a ruthlessness, a hurting, a breaking away from God and from the rest of humanity, a partial alienation or an act of rebellion. Sin has a willful, defiant, and disloyal quality. Someone is being defied, offended, or hurt. Guess who ultimately that is? Manager said this one last thing, and then I'll stop preaching on that. Preaching on sin in church, can you imagine? The reinstatement of sin would lead inevitably to the revival or reassertion of personal responsibility. In fact, the usefulness of reviving sin is that the responsibility would be revived with it. If we would be responsible for our own actions, which the Old Testament makes very clear, don't blame it on your child on your parent or whatever. Yes, they may have had an influence. Yes, they may have damaged you. I've counseled people for 44 years. I know there's tons of damage. But ultimately, you have to make up your mind, are you going to do right or wrong? And you can do that in spite of what the lies tell you. You actually can. Christ the Son, the second fill-in was Christ the sacrifice on our behalf While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We actually can rest in his finished work. But I've got to find rest by coming clean with God and facing my reality. I think not only does our culture have no clue, what does it mean to sin? We don't even use that word and we don't understand it. Therefore, we do all kinds of things that are wrong, but nobody's told us that it's wrong. And then inside the church, I'd like to let you off, but I can't. Because here's what I hear in the church. Oh, I'm just stubborn. I'm just a crabby person. It's just my nature. You know, it's how I am. You know, it's like I can't do anything about it. I had a young lady in my church years ago. It it was out in Tucson, so nobody has to worry that I'm talking about them. You know, she says, I'm just stubborn. (laughs) That's the way I am. (laughs) Her life was a disaster. It was a wreck. Because if you're stubborn, because you're not just stubborn, you're sinning. Crabbiness, your control fanaticism, your nosiness, your gossip, your fibbing, whatever it happens to be. Have you taken any time to ponder? Am I sinning? I wonder why the Christian life isn't working for you, not having a great time, and it isn't so fun. Christianity looks like this. Take pictures of typical church service. Anyway, next one, Christ is the servant. In his high priestly role, he steps in to rescue us. He perfectly, completely, that word that said he learned obedience and was perfected, that's what it's talking about. He perfected, he got to the end of the job of doing what the Messiah was supposed to do according to the Old Testament. He made it all happen. He was perfected. It was complete. And he will come, we'll come back to this obedience thing uh, another time. But he experienced, experientially, he learned what it meant to obey, what it was going to cost him 
to rescue us. We're going to be at the table today. We're going to worship Jesus for what he did. I want you to think about this. This is an amazing thought that came across my my studies in, in Lane's book on Hebrews, A Call to Commitment. Think about this, on the obedience of Christ. His faithfulness consisted in listening to the voice of the Father. By the way, you'll be glad. This is the last book I'm reading from. Okay? I mean, not counting the Bible. T- today. His faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness, consisted in listening to the voice of the Father. Isn't that the goal of our Christian life, to learn to hear the voice of the Father? I'm wrestling with this now. We're working on the school board. We're trying to come up with a up-to-date 2020 but modest dress code for our school. Good luck with that. Because what people think, right? You know, how do you make every... You can't. But my point is this. What do we want? Do we want everybody to look good on the outside? Or do we want them to get it on the inside? The goal, the point of the word as we, we bathe ourselves in his truth is that we learn to hear the voice of the Father. We're all his sons and daughters, right? I was watching someone over here worshiping this morning. I am who you say I am. And they were having a great time. And you can too. Just not right now. I'm busy. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned by listening intently to what the scriptures had to say concerning his mission. What did the scriptures have to say? Let's look at it real quick here. Do I have uh, something from the book of Isaiah? Jesus would have known this, correct? Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. This is King James, by the way. But he was wounded for our transgressions. How many of you know this? He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, to get atonement, to get the key given back to, you know, to get it right, it was put on him. And with his stripes we're healed. It goes on. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Anybody recognize that? Famous. You know what this is called? The servant passage. Jesus, the servant, as high priest, knows This is the will of my Father. He wants me to fulfill that. I'm about to go into it. So he goes on in Lane's commentary. He heard intently what the Scriptures had to say. In the statement of Scripture, he heard the voice of God addressing him. The extent of Jesus' obedience can be measured in terms of his death on the cross. He actively obeyed God when he offered himself for us. He experienced fully the significance of living out obedience. Didn't mean he had to learn how. He experienced it. Just like one time I was repairing a lamp. And as I was repairing the wiring on the lamp, I forgot that in one of my test runs, I had left it plugged in. And I experienced, I learned the powers of electricity. You get what I'm saying? And I mean, I learned it really good. I know the words well, but when that happened, it was good. 
<laughs> oh, my goodness, who has more fun than people? My wife always says, he opens not his mouth. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how did he learn that obedience? What is this describing? Gethsemane, right? Let's just read it real quickly. He went a little beyond them. He fell on his face and prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this, this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. Was death Breathing down on him? Yes. Was that awful? Yes. Was it going to be awful? Yes. Was that what he was asking help for? No. Yes, he needed help to fulfill his mission. Remember, it wasn't just a brutal torturing death. It was that plus the psychological weight of all the sin of the entire world. A cosmic weight was going to come on him as he faced death. Something none of us can understand. You know, remember Atlas with the world on his back? Mickey Mouse. He learned to pray, learned to obey, and he pressed through and said, not my will but yours, I submit. And in one of the texts he says, Father, glorify yourself. And God said, I am. I'm going to glorify myself. You're going to fulfill the mission. He got his prayer answered. He was heard for his piety. That's what it was. The last word, Christ is the Savior. He's the source. He's the son of God. He's the sacrifice. He's the servant as a priest. That makes him our savior, our substitute, the source, author, captain, the pioneer of our salvation. Here's what it says later in the book of, uh, what book are we in? Hebrews. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, like we saw in Genesis, skinning of animals, there had to be a death. Those were all pictures. That was on the earth. This is a heavenly reality. There needs to be a knocking at heaven's door to present the atoning key. Not of this creation, and not through the blood of both goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal salvation, eternal redemption. And everybody said, Amen. That's our Savior. That's who we're worshiping today. You'd never be here if it hadn't been for our source. You couldn't be. The last verse I'm going to just pass over because we want to gather around the table, but... It's, it's that famous text in, in Psalm 51. What are the sacrifice? What do I bring to please God? How can I make atonement with God? How, how many big checks do I have to write? How many motorcycles do I have to give away? And I'm ready. Oh, no, never mind. Um, you know, what, what do, how many our fathers do I need to say? Um, how many volunteering uh, days or weeks in a row? How much work for the food pantry do I have to do? I have to commit to 10 years. Will that be enough to make God happy? It's finished. He's already happy. He's provided the payment for you if you will receive it. But the question becomes, have I received it? Now, whether I believe everything you're saying, that's nice. You can believe everything I just said and go to hell when you die. There is such a place. That becomes reality every time I bury somebody. And I share that with the people. It's not automatic. 
How do I get it? Well, let's fire it up real quick. You do not delight in sacrifice or giving away your motorcycle. Otherwise, I would give it. And I'm not giving mine away. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God from our side. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient and finished. The sacrifice on our part, what we do is respond to our faith. I believe that he died for my sins. So what do I do? I find myself with a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. If I know that I am the one who has stepped over the line deliberately, I need somebody to pay for that. And I'm willing to receive that. I, I'm willing and I am ashamed and I understand that I need that life eternal as a gift. I can't make it work myself. I'll never be able to. It is finished. And I can rest in that. We're going to illustrate it. The table is an illustration of the gospel. Jesus gave his body, his substitutionary servanthood as high priest was not only to make an offering, but to make himself the offering. His body and his shed blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness. The wages of sin is death. This table illustrates all that he has done on our behalf. He is exalted. I hope he's exalted in your life today as we worship around the table. If you've never settled the question, we would be delighted to talk with you after service. Come up, catch any of our staff. Make sure you know that you're not guessing. You're not hoping. Well, I, I, I don't think I've done anything all that terrible. You're already over the line. You just don't know it. Make sure. That's why we have churches on the earth. We're here to give you the good news that you can know him and have that settled. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done on our behalf. And uh, we cannot exalt you enough. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And that's us. So we thank you in your great name. Amen.